If you were with us for 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we saw David's fall. And David was forgiven, but he was promised fallout from his fall, consequences from what had occurred. And one of the major pieces of those consequences is his son Absalom, conspiracy and rebellion against his father. It's a sad, tragic consequence, and it's something that David has to deal with. But there's great lessons here for us to learn about Absalom's rebellion. And it's today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Absalom used to rise early, verse 2, and stand beside the way to the gate. The gate was the city hall of the ancient world where what's called adjudication would happen. They would, they would hear cases and come to conclusions of judgment and trials and that kind of thing. So Absalom woke up early. He believed in the early saying, the early bird gets the crown. And he would stand by the way of the gate. And it happened when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment because the king would hear cases. Absalom would call to him. He had his chariots and horses and 50 men. He looked official. And he would say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Hey, he, he kind of intercepted people who are supposed to be coming to King David to hear his wisdom. And he stood a little bit before the gate and he would say, hey, where are you from, where are you from brother, sister? Oh, I'm from the tribe of Dan. Oh, you are. I have a cousin out in those parts. Uh, yeah, yeah. You ever experienced this and that from over there and there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know that place. And he would all of a sudden begin to position himself so he could be the judge. After all, he didn't think his father's judgment was that great anyway. Where are you from? Hey, let's, let's talk a little bit. The city gate being the official city hall, you can check Genesis 19.1, where Lot is at the city gate. You can check out Deuteronomy 21.19, Ruth 4.1, but just think of the city gate as kind of city hall. And so here's Absalom intercepting. He has initiative. He wakes up early. He intercepts. He ingratiates himself with the people. Absalom would say to him, the person that he struck up the conversation, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. If you have the ESV, it says, there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Here is the problem, brother. I hear what you're saying. I think your claims are good and right. I agree with you. If only King David would get his administration together... People like you could be heard. People like you would get recourse for their cases, uh, you know, against others. But this administration is slack. They don't care about the people anymore. Do you see a budding politician? Oh, yeah. Sure, he had posters with his face on it. Make Israel great again. <laughs> Stuff like that. And what he was really implying is the king doesn't listen to you. They don't listen to you anymore. They don't care about the people. Your chances of receiving justice from this administration are slim to none, brother. But 
I hear you. I'm the crown prince after all, and I hear what you're saying. And he began to create a dilemma. He was making political promises, and he was also speaking against his father's administration. And Absalom would then say something like this, verse 4, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I, can you hear it, brothers and sisters, I would give the people justice. Political promises, right? We've heard it from every politician from the time there was any kind of democratic process. I will be a friend of the people. I will do this. Read my lips. <laughs> this is back a couple of generations ago. Read my lips. No new taxes. Yeah, right. But this is how the game works. And Absalom began to play the game. And he began to put doubt in people's hearts about David and make them Look at him, and after all, Absalom was a good-looking dude. He had an impressive entourage. There was no one as handsome as him, and remember, most people's hairdos had some of Absalom's hair. <laughs> if you were with us last week, he had some big hair, man. He, he had opened several stores. He had a chain going on. <laughs> J. Vernon McGee called Absalom a great backslapper. I'll take care of you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Backslapper. And so he began to tell people, look, if I was in charge around here, people would be getting justice. I'll set things right. And it happened that when a man came near prostrate to prostrate himself before him, by the way, which shouldn't have happened because he wasn't the king, but a man would come and prostrate himself. Notice how quick on the trigger Absalom was. Earlier we saw he would tell the person they're right before he even apparently heard the case. And then when a person came before Absalom, he would put out his hand, he would take hold of him, and he would kiss him. Where are you from, man? Oh, yeah, it's going to be okay. And he, he was, his father just kissed him at the end of the last chapter. He was giving kingly kisses, but his kisses were full of malice almost like the hypocritical kiss of Judas when he kissed Jesus in the garden to identify him as the one. And in this manner, Absalom, verse 6, dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so verse 6 says, Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Little by little, one at a time, he would hear a case. He would say, I will, I will give Justice in your favor. He would kiss them. He would say he had a connection to them. He understood them. They would walk away saying, man, he's handsome. He's impressive. He listens to the people. And he gives judgments in our favor. What else could you want? And so he stole their hearts away. There are some scholars that believe that David may have been sick, physically ill at this time. There are some psalms that are attributed to this time that speak of some sort of sickness. Thus it may be, and this is conjecture, but this is one view, that Absalom kicked David when he was down 
and stepped into an open gap to seize advantage when his father was physically ill and maybe couldn't carry out all the duties of the office. I mean, that's one explanation, and it seems to make some sense. Here's one of the Psalms you can look at, Psalm 41. Just go to your right, Psalm 41. Many of the Psalms are written by David, and of course, a lot of them are written during times of trouble. That's what makes them so relatable. And you might be asking, well, what was David's weapon if he was on a sickbed and Absalom's pulling all these shenanigans? What did David do? And what should I do if something similar is happening to me? One writer this week I read said, David's main weapon in these times was prayer. In Psalm 41, he said, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. Do not give him over to the desires of his enemies. The Lord, 41.3, will sustain him on his sickbed in his illness. Thou dost restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. I'm sure David's sin still bothered him, of course. My enemies speak evil against me. They say things like this, when will he die? And his name perish. Maybe you could read between the lines, when will he die so I can just take over And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. You can imagine Absalom visiting David. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. He doesn't tell me, but he tells it when he leaves. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. They say, a wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. He's sick because of what he did. Verse 9, even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. By the way, this is quoted in the New Testament in regard to Judas betraying Jesus. But thou, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that thou art pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, thou dost uphold me in my integrity. Thou dost set me in thy presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Back to 2 Samuel. Now, there's a little bit of a debate as to the number in verse 7. There are some manuscripts that say at the end of 40 years. That's how the New American Standard reads in verse 7. There are some, a few manuscripts that say 40 days And if you have an ESV or NIV, it says four years, which is technically called an emendation. It's amended, and it's amended based upon a few manuscripts, namely the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, and then from Josephus. Uh, Those who translate believe four makes more sense, and just so you know, It's the difference between 4 and 40 is one plural ending. And so sometimes in the translations or the copies, if there was some sort of copyist error, and by the way, this doesn't mean that the Bible is not the word of God, but it was copied by humans. So sometimes by looking at various manuscripts, we can get get back to the original, and we can tell there was a slip of the pen somewhere. And by the way, it's just a slip of the pen potentially on a number. So if you want to do a little bit more homework, I can recommend some resources. But basically, uh, it would seem that the more logical conclusion is at the end of four years. And this is what this would mean. 
Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. This is Pastor Michael Lance. I'm the senior pastor of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona. Hey, I want to tell you something that's exciting happening here at the church. We have a college that we've started. We offer a two-year diploma in Christian apologetics and theology. We have two exciting classes coming up with great instructors. It's Hidden Riches of Church History from the Resurrection to the Reformation. And we have a class on Christian philosophy. How do we know what truth is? We're going to look at epistemology and some other subjects like that. Are you a working adult? Have you just graduated from high school and looking to go deeper in your faith? The tuition is very low and the instruction is excellent. And the classes start in July. Are you interested? Do you want to go deeper in your faith? Do you want to be more equipped to give answers for the hope that you have in the public square? Well, check it out today. It's thetruthacademy.com, thetruthacademy.com. Sign up today, find out all the information, and get equipped. God bless you. It would seem that the more logical conclusion is at the end of four years. And this is what this would mean, that Absalom was doing what he was doing as described in the first six verses for about four years. That's about how long it took. 40 years seems to be a really long time. David would be really old, so you can see part of the dilemma there. So here's what happened. At the end of four years, if that's correct, Absalom said to the king, verse 7, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So all of a sudden, Absalom comes to the king. He's been doing this stuff for potentially four years, and he says, I made a vow, and I want to go pay that vow in Hebron. Now, maybe, maybe his dad was thinking, well, maybe the young man's getting some conviction about a spiritual life. This could be a good thing. He made a vow to the Lord. Certainly, you're supposed to pay your vows, and it's been a while, so, so this is what he comes. He comes with religious pretense. He says, your servant, and I don't think he's David's servant, but that's what he says, verse 8. He says, Vowed a vow while I was living at Geshur. Remember, he had ran off to his grandpa after he killed Amnon in Aram, saying, if the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, if I end up back in the royal court, if you will, then I will serve the Lord. So we've all probably been there before. Maybe we're in a tight spot and we, we're, we didn't know what was going to happen. And maybe, maybe you've done this before. I don't recommend this, but some people have done it. They make a vow to the Lord in a tight spot. You've all probably been there. Okay, Lord, if you get me out of this one, I will serve you. And God is so gracious, he'll often get you out of that one. But then he'll say, now, serve me. And that's when a lot of people say, now that you got me out of this one, see you later, God. I'll, I'll call you next time I have an emergency. Now, we don't know if this is true or not, but... This is what Absalom said. I made a vow. I need to go to Hebron and pay for it. Hebron was a famous uh, place in the life of the early patriarchs. It was also where David was anointed king at first. It's where Absalom was born. And so the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. All right, guys, here's the plan. I told dad I got to pay a vow, and that's why I'm going to Hebron. And as soon as I arrive and you hear the trumpet blow, begin to announce me as king. Look, this is what he's been working towards for four years. 
This is the little game he was playing. This is what he had going on. Do you think David knew? Oh, I think deep down. David had to have heard information. He probably knew something was going on. As soon as the trumpet sounds, the coup is on. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently. He may have told them, I'm going to go pay my vow. There's going to be some sort of religious celebration. They didn't know anything. And he pulled 200 men away. What type of men do you think he pulled out of the city and brought to Hebron? Probably administrative leaders, probably military leaders, probably the core of the essential leadership that surrounded David. And he pulled him out of the city in a brilliant move to weaken the support that David would have once it was known that Absalom was trying to steal or usurp the throne. It was brilliant. We'll pull his main leadership out. We'll pull his main cabinet out and basically hold those people hostage so we can take over. Now think about it. A son is doing this to his dad. Talk about devastating. And so they didn't know anything, but this was part of the puzzle that Absalom was constructing. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, who was one of David's main counselors from the city of Gilo, while he was offering sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. It was like a snowball rolling down the hill. Momentum was gained. He chipped away little by little, and the kingdom conspiracy was on. And now he had captured the hearts of so many that it looked like this huge dilemma. And a messenger came to David and said, 13, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. There's a coup going on. He's taken 200 of your top men away. He's been chipping away at the hearts of the people. And we warned you. We told you. Reading between the lines. David said to his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. For otherwise, none of us shall escape from Absalom. He's killed his brother, and I think he'll do it again. David's basically saying, go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And David was told by Nathan, the sword will never leave your house. And David is starting to think, you know what? Not only is my son trying to take over my throne, but it's risking the lives of everybody I love. How many times did David have to look in the mirror and say, oh, God, forgive me for my sin. Oh, God, forgive me for what I've created. Let us go. In John 14, after Jesus said some things to the apostles, some key things about heaven and who he was, he said, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do arise. Let us go from here. I'm going to be betrayed. Who is it, Lord? Who is it? The one who dips in the bowl at the same time. And they said, is it me, Lord? They didn't know. Judas was a great actor like Absalom. They didn't even know it was him. A lot of people, when they picture Judas Iscariot, they think he had red bloodshot eyes, and you could see little horns coming out of his hairdo. Judas knew it all along. No, they didn't know it. He appeared righteous. What was really going on in Judas was going on in here. He was so good that not even the 12 apostles, or 11, knew it was him. So get out of your mind that Judas had a little, you know, tail 
coming out of the back of his robe. Uh Uh-uh. He was the ultimate hupakritas, the ultimate actor, and there's a lot of them out there, and Absalom was one of them. Man, he'd come to his father, bowed before him. He told dad, I'm going to go... I'm going to go deal with a religious vow, but all along he had the intention of destroying his father's kingdom. Now, if you turn to Psalm 3, to your right again, here's another psalm during this time. And uh, in some of the cases of the psalms, you'll see a heading at the top of the psalm, and it will give you the historical context of when it was written. So take a look, Psalm 3, See the heading, a psalm of David, when what? When he fled from Absalom, his son. So here we are. We can see kind of the heart of David. What was he praying? What was he thinking? What was he saying to God? Here's what he said. Oh, Lord, Psalm 3, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Remember, there was many people with Absalom. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. David's done. I don't know if you've noticed, Absalom's taken over. But thou, O Lord, art a what? A shield about me. You're my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down. Imagine how tough it would have been to sleep the next night. And I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people. I don't care how many people he's got on his side. I won't be afraid who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing be upon thy people. Now, as great a warrior, back to 2 Samuel 15, as David was, he believed that one of the essential weapons in dire straits was prayer. Do you? Do I? Is prayer a last-ditch effort, or do you believe that one of the weapons of your warfare in spiritual warfare is prayer? David did. In fact, some of the more poignant psalms that really speak to our hearts were written when David seemed to have no way out. And you may be feeling like you have no way out. Let me just tell you that God's big enough to deal with the enemies that are multiplying. Then the king's servants said to the king, 15, 2 Samuel 15, 15, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. Now, there were faithful men that were around David. And they said, tell us what to do, and we'll do it. When Jesus was beginning to go through what's called the upper room discourse in John 13 and share with the apostles, and there was some heaviness, Peter said to the Lord, I will lay down my life for you. I don't care how many people are coming. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus said to him, will you, Peter? I tell you the truth. Before the cock crows, you will deny that you even know me three times. Peter couldn't imagine that. But the men who were faithful to David, and he, he, he did have men that were faithful, said, tell us what to do and we'll do it. They showed fidelity and faith. We'll do whatever my Lord the King chooses. That's what a Christian says, by the way. Whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'll do, Lord. We should come to the end of a day, every day, and say, I did what I did because you are my king, and I didn't do certain things because you are my king. 
That's what it means to have Jesus be your Lord. And so the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left 10 concubines. This is a bit of a head scratcher, but he left them to keep the house, which is going to backfire because later Absalom is going to ravage them as a statement that he is now the king. We'll see that later. For David, maybe it was a statement of faith anticipating his return. And the king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. So now picture them. They're going out of the city. The city's set up on a hill, so you kind of have to go down a hill and back up. If you're heading eastward, here's how it works. There's, the Temple Mount is here. And if you're looking east, you, you look to the Mount of Olives. And you go down into the old city from what is believed to be the Temple Mount. You go down, and then you go back up again to the Mount of Olives. So that's what David did. He began to depart from the city. And the last house, kind of the last house on the outskirts, they stopped. Can you imagine that moment for a second? This was called the city of David. This is your city. Think of it this way. This is your property. This is my house. And I got to leave right now because my son's coming to kill me and take over. You imagine the emotion, the pathos, and they come to the edge of town, if you will, and stopped at the last house and did something like this. David had to be thinking, am I going to see this city again? Is my son going to usurp my throne? Is this part of God's disciplinary hand in my life? They stopped at the last house, almost like a Selah pause that we see in the Psalms. When Jesus left the temple in Matthew he said, your house is left to you desolate. I wonder if David was thinking something similar. Now, all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites. These are foreigners, the Pelethites who had become uh, committed to David, all the Gittites. You can think of uh, Gentiles here, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on or crossed over before the king. David had commitments from Gentile soldiers and people who were foreigners, which anticipates the fact that in Christ, the Gentiles will hope. If you're not a Jew here, you're a Gentile. And in Christ, the Gentiles will hope. And David is a foreshadowing of the greater David. They're separated by a thousand years. King David foreshadows the greater David, the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, and many Gentiles trusted in Christ. Hey, listening family, I want to tell you a little bit more about the store at walkintruth.com, and I'd like to highlight a teaching we have up there. It's called The Anatomy of a Fall, and it's from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. How can we keep from falling to sexual sin in a culture like ours? Well, we've tackled this and put it on the radio recently. I know you can benefit from it. You can also pass it along to a friend. It's available in CD and DVD format. And you go to walkintruth.com, click on the store. And when you purchase a product, you are partnering with us to help us reach more people like you. When you buy something, it goes directly to paying for radio airtime. So walkintruth.com, click on the store and look for the anatomy of a fall. Purchase it, pass it along to somebody else, and you'll be partnering with this radio ministry. We appreciate it. God bless you. And we'll catch you next time on Walk in Truth. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.